Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We start our summer sermon series. In this series, we will take Paul's words and look at what we will become down the road. In this first sermon, we start looking at what it means to love. You're listening to Love Must Be Sincere by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21. And you're free to look that up in your Bibles, but you'll notice that we put it on a handy-dandy bulletin insert. We don't usually do that, and I'll explain to you later why we did that. So you may either open your Bibles or follow along on our insert. And before I, I get to reading it, and um, I would like to say a few words about uh, this text and this coming summer sermon series. As Chad said, this is the first of uh, a whole series of sermons this summer, which will all be on Romans 12, 9 through 21. As we read it later, you'll see that it's a text full of formative advice about what the Christian life looks like. There's all sorts of different advice in here, wonderful advice of how we are to live as Christians. And so we'll spend the whole summer looking at these different pieces of advice and be formed by the Word of God. And it's an important passage in Scripture. It comes at a a crucial point in the book of Romans. It comes at the point where Paul changes from telling us about what God has done for us to telling us the shape of the sort of life we should live in response to God's salvation. And I think most of you know that that is a typical structure in Paul's letters, right? Paul often starts out his letters with saying, this is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he's always effusive and excited. And then at a certain point, there's a turn where he says, therefore, and then he starts to describe, this is how you should live. That starts at the beginning of chapter 12 in the book of Romans. So Paul does 11 chapters of, here's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 12, he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And he starts to talk about the shape of our life. Now, so common, that's a common shape of Paul's letters. Now, sometimes when people see that, they think, oh, what Paul is doing is he's saying, okay, here's what God has done for you, first half of the letter. And the second half of the letter is now, here's what you must do. Here's what you must do for God. I understand why people say that, but that's not a good way to think of it. It's not... God has saved you, so now here's how you be good. As we heard last week in the sermon on Romans 8, it's about here's what God has started in you, and here is what he's starting to build in you and what he will finish. God has changed your heart, he saved you, and he is making you into a new creation. This is the kind of person he is making you to be. And he calls us, the Holy Spirit through Paul, calls us to cooperate with God as he makes us into this new creature. And this transformation is inevitable, right? Romans 8, where God calls, he justifies, he justifies, he glorifies, nothing can take us from the Father's hand. We are going to become these people. And I want to say that up front in this sermon series. Because it's easy to hear a passage like Romans 12, which is a whole string of imperatives, a whole string of don't do this, do that. It's easy to hear that and saying, okay, Peter, this is what you got to do. 
here's your to-do list. I've got to grip my teeth and roll up my sleeves and try and be this person, and it's really hard. That's not the way to think of it. This is not something you create. This is something you cooperate with that God creates. You don't do this. You help God and work with him as he does it in you. So here's the way I want you to think of Romans 12 as we study it the whole summer, okay? You know when you have a kitchen, imagine you're having a kitchen renovation and uh, you've lived in this dingy old kitchen for a long time, you've wanted to get it renovated and finally it's gonna happen. You've got a contractor, you've got a plan and to defray the cost, you're gonna help the contractor. You're gonna do some of the grunt work, okay? But the contractor's the one doing the main job. What's the first thing that the contractor does when he starts a project? He comes over to your house, he sits down in your dingy kitchen, he flips open his laptop, and he shows you first a picture of your old kitchen, and then he says, and now here's what I'm going to do. And it's bright, and it's airy, and it's beautiful, and you can't wait for your kitchen to look like this. Tomorrow the work will start, and it will be dirty work. You'll be smashing things. There's going to be dust. You're going to get hot and sweaty. But what drives you along is a picture of what it will look like in the end. As we read this, and as we meditate on this this summer, this is not just a set of instructions for you. This is a picture of who you will be as the new creation self, your renovated self, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So much do I want you to have that picture in your mind that brothers and sisters, I call you this summer to try to memorize this passage. <laughs> that, that was not a hopeful laugh that I heard. <laughs> no, I mean that. I want you, that's why it's in a little, a little um, that's why it's in an insert, because I want you to take this home and put it on your fridge or put it in every, whatever place will help you memorize it. And when we read it, it'll be a little different today. But from now on, during the Bible reading, it won't just me be reading to you. We're going to recite this passage together like we recite the creed. Um, and hopefully if we do that over and over again, by the end of the summer, you won't need to look down at your little thing. Now that's not going to happen if all you do is recite it. You're going to need to go home and, and you're going to need to work on it and try to do this. You're going to need to be intentional and look at it every day. Now, I know there are those among you who say, woe is me, Peter, for I am old and full of years. <laughs> and when I was young, lo, my, my mind was like Velcro and everything stuck. But behold, I am now old and my mind is like a sieve and I walk into the next room and I can't even remember why I went in there. <laughs> I say unto you, O ye of little faith, for behold, I too am old and full of years, and lo, even in my decrepitude, I have memorized this passage. I've memorized it. And so today, instead of us all reading it together, I am going to recite it for you, I hope. And don't receive this as um, a performance of, of this text, like, oh wow, he memorized it, because I, I don't think it's that impressive. Receive it as a picture of your renovated self. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. 
Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who, have in need, who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with, other, with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. It's, it's possible. And so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to start off uh, the rest of my sermon with this question. What is the central defining characteristic of Christian moral character? What is the central defining characteristic of Christian moral character? What I mean by that is when people think of Christians, when they experience life in the church, if they come here every week and join in the life of the church, what should be the thing that stands out above all others? What should be the first characteristic that jumps to their mind when they want to describe us? What should be the first thing that our children think of and say? when they want to describe the experience of Christian church. That's actually, um, that, that question is a really hot question right now. There are all sorts of Christian institutions. I'm thinking of churches, I'm thinking of schools and school systems, I'm thinking of parachurch organizations who are all writing identity statements, faith statements, trying to define for the world who they are. I've never seen so many being written as are being written right now. And as those identity statements are being written, uh, the thing that's getting the most discussion, the thing that gets all the attention are the hot button issues of moral identity right now. So sexuality and race, right? Those are the things that everybody's talking about that are taking up all the time as these things are being written. And those are important issues. Those are significant issues. But in our passage and in scripture, are they the central defining characteristics of Christian faith? No, I don't think so. I think it's pretty clear, especially in our passage, but all through scripture, that the central defining characteristic of our community should be love. I want to focus today on the first four words of our passage. Love must be sincere. That's going to be the center of my sermon, just those four words. And it's actually the name of the whole sermon series. And the reason for that is that those four words in the English function like a heading for this entire passage that I just recited that we'll be studying all summer. Uh, 
And here's how that's so. If you go to the Greek, it's only four words in English, but in the Greek, it's even shorter. It's only three words. In the Greek, it's heagape anupokritos. Heagape anupokritos. So it's an article, a noun, and an adjective. There is no verb. In the English, they say love must be sincere. They put a verb in there. But in the original Greek, there's no verb. So literally translated, it starts, Paul starts out this passage by saying sincere love. It just says that. And commentators looking at that, it's, it's good that the verb is supplied because clearly Paul is calling us to sincere love, but commentators looking at that saying, well, you can think of this as like a title, right? Like if you're in middle school and you're doing a little paper and it's say on panda bears, you write panda bears at the top of your paper and you underline it and then you write about panda bears. So a good way to think of this is Paul's written sincere love at the top of his paper, underlined it, and now he's going to tell us about sincere love. So the rest of this summer, we'll be unpacking what sincere love looks like when it takes residence in Christian community. In our passage, love is literally front and center of that community. Now that may be true in our passage, but does that mean that for everything, love is the central defining characteristic of Christian life? Well, if it was just our passage, that wouldn't be enough, but of course the rest of Scripture says the same thing. In the Old Testament, every single day, the Jewish people were called to recite the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. Love the Lord your God. Love is at the center. In Exodus 34, when Moses is on the mountain and he wants to see God's face, and God turns and shows him his back and proclaims his glory to him. That's what the text says. The Lord proclaimed his glory to Moses. What did that glory look like? The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Love is at the center of that revelation. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus puts love at the moral center, right? Chad read that earlier, the the, the Teachers of the law come to Jesus and they want to know what's the law about. And Jesus says, you can sum it up with the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus puts love at the center. John, in his writings, puts love at the center as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or in 1 John 4, even more pointedly, God is love, and whoever does not love does not know God. Love at the center. And of course, Paul puts love firmly at the center. Carlos sang that in that beautiful anthem, right? 1 Corinthians 13. You can have all the talents in the world. If you don't have love, you are nothing, says Paul. And all the things in the world, only faith, hope, and love remain. Greatest of these is love. Love at the center. And then, if you read a little further beyond where I stopped into our passage, go look at like Romans 13, verse 8. Paul says this, I think, remarkable thing. And I'm going to read it. He says to us, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continual debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. If you love others, you fulfill the law, says Paul. 
The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, whatever other commandment you want to come up with, they're summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law, says Paul. Paul puts love at the center. The defining moral characteristic of the Christian life is unequivocally love. Living in this community, it should be what we know amongst each other. It should be what our children find. And when people think about us there on the outside, the first thing they should think about us is that we are really good at love. Now, I I think I've made a convincing case for that, but some of you may say, and this is a reasonable question, yeah, I kind of see that, but what does that mean? Isn't this a bit mushy and undefined? Like, what are we, hippies? Love, man. You do you, and I'll do me, and hey, we'll all get along, and it'll be groovy, man. Is it just, is this sort of mushiness? Is this love? Does that just become a kind of a relativism where we just let everyone do whatever they want? That's a legitimate concern. And as I believe you will see in this sermon series, it's absolutely not what Paul means by love. The love that is revealed in the gospel and that is our moral center has definition, has purpose. It has a beginning. It has an end. It has things that count as love and things that don't count as love. There's a direction to it. And through the summer as we study it, I think that will become more clear. And just for today, let me point out that the two-word heading already gives our love that's at the moral center some definition. Paul says, agape anupokritos. Agape must be sincere. That word agape is a special word, and I think... Just about everybody here knows it, and you've heard me talk about it before. It's a special kind of love. It's the love that God showed to us through Jesus Christ. Here's what you may not know about agape. At least I didn't know until this week. Um, It really wasn't much used until Christians used it. It existed, that word, agape, um, but it really was a minor word. Hardly ever showed up in Greek literature, right? There's a lot of Greek literature before the New Testament, and scholars have done studies. Agape is almost never used. The other words like eros are used all the time. But then Paul comes along, and the other New Testament writers come along, and all of a sudden they use agape all the time. And after the New Testament, agape shows up all over the place. Why is that? Well, I think it's because when Paul sat down to write Romans and 1 Corinthians and all those books... And he wanted to describe the love of God. He knew that he was describing something completely different. And he said, I gotta find a word. I can't use the old words, I need a new word. And he chose this word so that when people read it, they said, agape, that's an unusual word choice. He must have something very specific in mind. And indeed he did. Agape is a cross-shaped love. It's not moved as so many loves are by passion or desire or beauty. It's not that you see something beautiful and say, oh my goodness, my darling, you are so beautiful. I must be with you. It's not desire flaming up. It's none of that kind of stuff. Agape is inspired and moved by weakness and need and sin and brokenness. That's what it sees, not beauty. 
And then it moves towards that weakness and brokenness with mercy, kindness, sacrifice. Sees brokenness, weakness, and need, moves towards it with mercy and sacrifice. And of course, that's Jesus' love. That's exactly how Jesus loved us on the cross. Jesus doesn't come to us because we're so excellent and praiseworthy and wonderful. He comes towards us because we are broken and we need rescuing. And Paul is very clear. He almost defines that love earlier in his book, Romans 5, 8. God showed his love for us in this. God showed us what agape is in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ saw our mess, moved towards it in love. That's the shape of agape. That's the cross-shaped love. And so when we say the defining moral characteristic of the Christian church is love, it's precisely and specifically that kind of love that the world should see, that our children should see, that we should see amongst each other. And it's not just the Bible that shows us the truth of this. Our experience shows us the truth of this too. I do a lot of funerals. I have done over the years, a lot of funerals. And when you do funerals, one of the joys of funerals, and I mean this seriously, is hearing stories of the person who's passed away and how much they were loved. So you hear those in the, the service, but you also hear a lot of them when you meet with the family. And so as I've listened to all those stories of, of people as they talk about their loved ones, I've noticed something. I've noticed that all the stories, the stories that tend to bring the most emotion, okay, the stories that when people tell them, move them to tears, are a specific kind of story. So when people are moved to tears, it's not because they're talking about the professional success of their loved one. Oh, he was a wonderful accountant, and he started a really great business, and he was so successful as that. They tell those stories, that doesn't make them emotional. It's not because of the great events that they did together. Oh, we had that, you know, 10 years ago, we went on that Caribbean cruise, and we had such a good time together as a family. They tell those stories, but those stories are not the ones that move them to tears. The deepest emotions are stirred when people talk about how their loved one was there for them in their time of need, in their time of weakness or sorrow. I was going through depression and dad called me every day. I would not have made it without him. When I was starting out at teaching, Mary was my co-teacher, she was just down the hall. She came and checked in on me at the end of every single day. She sent me stuff. I don't know how I would have made it through that first year without her. When I went through my divorce, my sister somehow knew, she somehow knew that Sunday would be the worst day, and so she would invite me over for dinner every Sunday. It's when people tell those stories that the emotions rise. Why is that? Because they're stories of agape. They're stories of love moving towards need and brokenness. They tell those stories and those stories move them because that's what the human soul needs. The human soul is made for that kind of love. People are moved by that because when they receive that kind of love, they know that they're tasting the love that they were eternally created for. We are created to be in fellowship with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to participate in his love, to be one with him, that agapic love that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And the reason 
that the emotions rise and the soul opens up when people love like that is because people somehow recognize that they're receiving the true love that comes from their eternal home. It's like they know to whom they belong. It's the most excellent love. If agape were truly the identity marker of our churches, these pews would never be empty. They'd look like this every single Sunday. And so I'm tempted to end this sermon by saying, okay, everybody, go out there and do agape. And yeah, I do want you to do that. But what I want to say instead is, this is who you will be. This is the love that God is building in your heart and he will finish. So go, therefore, and let that love transform you and let it flow through you and let it fill the world. Amen. Lord God, we sit again at the foot of your cross and receive the love that we did not earn, the love that came to us while we were still sinners, Lord, while we were still your enemies. You loved us and saved us. We pray that um, you continue to transform us. Lord, you've promised that we will be new creations. Finish then your new creation, pure and spotless let us be. In Christ's name we pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.